Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So guys, we are back with some more killer content for you guys. This year is going to be incredible. I don't know about you, but I'm very excited for 2020. This year is going to be amazing. So to kick the new year off, we have an amazing episode for you with a guy called Lo Tony. Now, Lo is an investor and founding managing partner of Plexo Capital, a fund that will invest in women and people of minority backgrounds. Now, Plexo Capital, the fund founded by the former Google Ventures partner, recently closed its first fund of $42.5 million. The plan is to invest in both startups and emerging VC funds, with 60 to 65% of capital going towards venture capital funds as a limited partner and 30 to 40% going directly to startups. This is incredible for all women and minority founders. A huge congrats there. So who is Lowe? Lowe has had an incredible career to date. And on this episode, we discuss a lot of the work that he has done over the years with the likes of eBay, the gaming giant Zynga, and transitioning into a venture capital role at Google Ventures, which led him to Plexo Capital today. Not only do we get all the gems that you would expect from such an elaborate career such as Lowe's, but we also get super detailed on marketing and more importantly, how marketing should be viewed more as maths and science than anything else. And that's actually been quite an interesting theme from a lot of the successful entrepreneurs that we've had on the show, how they view marketing more as, a, as more of a science form as opposed to an art form. Very interesting. Speaking of maths and science, I want to give a huge shout out to our sponsors, Blinkist. This year, I have so much going on with my new role I just started, as well as my side hustle projects and this podcast, of course. So reading a book cover to cover just isn't going to be feasible, in all honesty. If this sounds like your year too, then you should definitely check out the app Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that condenses best-selling non-fiction books down to their key takeaways for you to read or listen to in just 15 minutes. If you listen to some of the earlier episodes of Startup Hand-Me-Downs, you'll see that I used to end the show with three main points just to really hit things home. That's exactly what Blinkers does, but in 15 minutes, which is awesome. As you guys know, I love building products. It's my, it's my passion. And one of the hardest things to do is build an app that people actually love. So I decided to read a book called Hooked by Nia Yal which is a bestseller and talks about how to build super successful apps like Instagram and how building apps like Instagram is more science. If you haven't read Hooked, it's definitely something I recommend if you're trying to build an app. So guys, right now, Blinkers has a special offer just for startup hand-me-down listeners. Go to blinkers.com slash hand-me-downs to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off all Blinkers premium memberships. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash hand-me-downs to get 25% off and start a seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist.com slash hand-me-downs. All right, guys, let's jump into the action. So, Lo, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. So, look, when you are out and about, how do you introduce yourself to people? I introduced myself as Low Tony. Nice to meet you. <laughs> I just had someone else say the exact same thing, and I was like, maybe that is the best way to introduce yourself. <laughs> like, no one really walks around talking about what they do as soon as they, like, yeah, your name, that's it. <laughs> okay, so, Low, talk to me a bit about your background. I want to talk a bit about your background. So, where did you grow up? I grew up in Oakland, California. Oakland, California, born and raised. Yes. Awesome. And, and how did you get into tech? What, what happened during your upbringing that got you into technology? There are a couple of things. Number one, it's difficult to not have exposure to tech growing up in the Bay Area, especially at, at that time. And then I would say number two, I was fortunate to have some folks in my family that were in technology. So... A few aunts and uncles 
that were in technology and biotech as well, actually, and gave me some good exposure. One uncle in particular, Glenn Tony, he had a almost 25-year career at Applied Materials, which is the large publicly traded company that produces capital equipment for the semiconductor industry. So Applied Materials makes the machines that manufacture silicone into chips. And I was fortunate enough to get a summer internship at Applied Materials during college. And that's what really opened my eyes to tech and the opportunities. Oh, I mean, it's so important. I mean, you know, we we speak so much about role models um, and just access, and that ultimately changed the trajectory of your life, right? Correct. So, after college, what was the first thing that you that you decided to do? I had I actually during undergrad had always been interested in finance and ended up taking a role um, with a large bank in financial services, and I always say that even though my career changed paths, I think that piece was really important because it gave me the fundamentals of how to run a spreadsheet, how to understand how to read financial statements, which ultimately became important later in my career, even though I didn't, I don't call venture capital financial services, I think of it more as just a sub-sector of tech. Mm. But I think that learning the ins and outs at a financial services firm was important because it gave me a solid understanding of financial statements, how to run a spreadsheet, and just general analytical rigor. Yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. And then, obviously, you spent some time in, in various tech companies, one of which was eBay. Now, yes. you are a director and GM at eBay during like the growth period. Um, so like, let's talk a bit about that experience while at eBay, like some of the things that you were learning. I mean, obviously, eBay were basically creating the marketplace as an industry, right? The, the business model around marketplaces. So what was that experience like? It was That was one of the experiences that I always look back on as being transformational to my career. Correct in that eBay really made the marketplace business model mainstream and was the first to really take it to significant scale. The thing that was, I think, was most interesting uh, for me in terms of just being at the right place at the right time, I was employee 3,848 in 2002, and when I left, there were about 15,000 people. So I definitely saw a significant ramp, and it was a place where didn't really realize it at the time and definitely did not have a grand plan, but I was fortunate to be there to learn the marketplace business, which, as you know, has become a fundamental piece of the technology ecosystem, especially on the the consumer-facing side with so many business models having a a marketplace component. I mean, you know, everything from Uber and Lyft to, um, you know, past success stories like OpenTable to even Airbnb. Yeah. So I was fortunate to be able to, to learn the marketplace model and the dynamics, which has been very helpful in the venture space, understanding supply and demand, the cold start problem of a marketplace, the playbook to effectively get a marketplace started um, from that cold start, and all of the other dynamics and nuances, things such as how do you manage trust and safety so that if you have a situation where let's use you know Rover or Wag as an example. You meet a dog walker on Rover or Wag. You know what's the motivation once you find that perfect dog walker for you to stay on and continue to transact on the platform as opposed to starting to transact off of the platform. Mm. It's a gray market problem. So I think all of those things I was fortunate to be able to learn the marketplace playbook plus 
I was also able to learn a lot about customer acquisition. I was fortunate to be there at the time where eBay was the largest customer of, of Google. And you have to take yourself all the way back. I mean, you know, I was there at eBay when Google went public. And when they did, eBay was the largest um, customer, the buyer of keywords, right? Mm. So eBay was spending an enormous amount of money on keywords, realized that, you know, there, there has to be a better way. And, you know, I was there and fortunate enough to be there with folks like um, Jeff Hausenbold, who's now at, at SoftBank Vision Fund, who was at the time running acquisition. And you'd go into a conference room after Jeff and his team were in there, and it looked like you were stepping into an econ class <laughs> in grad school because of all the, the charts and supply and demand curves that were on the whiteboard. It really kind of fundamentally let me know, wow, we're in a different world mm. where as opposed to marketing being the place of, you know, putting people who were afraid of math, we had transitioned to a world where marketing was all about math. And then kind of watching eBay's evolution and participating as part of those teams that helped transition to generate more search results and, in essence, acquire customers, both on the supply and the demand side, through content. Right. So, you know, saw the beginnings of strategies around SEO and content development. So, you know, kind of all of these things together really fundamentally gave me a good playbook to understand things that were happening. Um, you know, and then the other piece that, again, you know, you can't really you know, see these things going in often, but there were a lot of smart people at eBay when I was there. And What's really interesting is that a lot of the people in my cohort have gone on to venture capital. So, you know, people like Jeff Jordan at Andreessen Horowitz. We were at eBay at the same time. Dana Stalder at Matrix. Uh, uh, Eric, um, Greg Bettinelli at, um, at Upfront. Will and, and Eric at uh, Will Sue and Eric Renala at Mucker Capital. Um, Shree. Who has uh, who's over at her own fund now? Um, a bunch of operating partners. Kate, who was doing design things at eBay, a design partner at GP. Um, they're just a you know a bunch of people that um, have now gone on to to venture capital as well. So it was an amazing place that again was just transformational in, in my career trajectory. Yeah, no, that sounds incredible. I mean, you know, when people think about, um, you know, PayPal in the early days and how everyone from PayPal went on to just go and create products and other businesses, it sounds like people from eBay just moved out of that network into venture capital. Yeah, venture capital. Uh, um, you know, there are other folks, um, Josh Koppelman um, and Chris um, at, at first round, but then, you know, you had other folks go on to, um, you know, to, to do great things at, at other places as well. I mean, obviously, you know, people have followed Meg Whitman and, um, you know, you had people, a lot of people go on to places like Facebook, yeah. uh, even Zynga where I, where I was spent a little bit of time as well. Yeah. I was going to say, so with, um, so after that whole experience at eBay, um, you know, understanding the marketplace model and understanding, you know, taking a scientific approach towards marketing, which we'll, I'd like to get into in, in, a, in a moment. You transitioned into Zynga. Correct. And and so what was that role like? Because you took more of it, you were almost like a, you took a PM role there, was that correct? So at Zynga, I was running, I was a general manager and I was running a couple of the games. So initially I was running Yeovil and then transitioned over to run poker. And yeah. ultimately created casino, so having multiple games uh, under a casino entrance. And Zynga was, was an amazing experience as well because I knew that new platforms at that time, Facebook, were, were going to be drivers of customer acquisition. So I, I, I knew that. I also knew that the ability to apply game mechanics to experiences, especially 
initially I was thinking consumer, but I mean, now we even see it in the world of some enterprise apps. Mm. So I knew that game mechanics were going yeah. to be important to learn just kind of from a, you know, more of a product perspective. And I was fortunate to, to be able to be early at Zynga, um, pre-IPO, stayed through the IPO, and then just met some amazing people. I mean, there was a time where, you know, the, the product managers at Zynga were definitely the most in-demand product managers to hire uh, just because they had a, a focus on, um, you know, analytics and data-driven decisions. Mm. You know, at, at that time, it was interesting. If you go back and look, um, the pendulum, in my opinion, had just really started to swing at Facebook from engineering to, to you know, thinking more about business and product decisions, kind of leading a lot of the development. So, so there was a period of time where I think, you know, the best place to learn product as we think about product today was at Zynga. And I was fortunate to to be there and, and part of that. And, and, you know, what you're alluding to is learned how to apply a lot of these things that I was just kind of, you know, opening that eBay playbook um, and then learning a new playbook on customer acquisition, especially as it relates to you know, a platform like Facebook. Yeah. And like Zynga is obviously notorious for their customer acquisition. And, you know, some people say that Zynga definitely rode um, kind of like on the coattails of the Facebook gaming apps heyday, right? So how are you managing acquisition? And what were some of the things that worked that didn't work? And, and how are you managing the growth of Zynga? Yeah, you know, the so my time at poker and you know at that time i i grew poker um significantly um from probably about a 150 million dollar business to a quarter of a billion dollar revenue business and the biggest drivers for us on the acquisition side i mean obviously you know there was a period early on in the evolution of the art of that platform and poker in particular, where the majority of the acquisition was coming from other users. I mean, you remember, you know, getting spammed. Yeah. yeah, that was, was that you? That was, that was you? Part of that. That work, you know, the motivations were there for people to be able to continue to play for free. The kind of the, you know, the price of entry was spamming your friends or open your your wallet and so you know obviously that model was you know in a generic sense 99 percent of the population on zinca preferred to spam their friends than to open their their wallet mm. so that drove a lot of growth and then you know the other thing that happened over time and you know this is the same art for a lot of consumer offerings today, you know, you start with good um, word of mouth or having your users drive your, the majority of your growth, right? That's the same thing with Zynga. But then over time, as you scale, you know, you can't rely solely on those channels for continued growth. And you're then looking for other methods to grow. And a lot, a lot of that often leads to the paid acquisition. Oh. So the beauty at, at Zynga was that, you know, we were using a, a customer acquisition model based off of, you know, we, we tried multiple ways to look at the long-term value of a customer or user, the LTV. Yeah. Uh, you know, in some instances, and you know, always the, the focus was on you know, how much we were monetizing those users by you know, looking at the amount of revenue that we were able to generate in the aggregate. And then we would also often play with you know, other variables as well. So looking at not only how much money we were generating, but what was the efficiency of our ability to be able to have to gain users um, as well from the viral methods. So kind of an LTV that was a combination of not only 
the monetization of users, but also how well users helped us get other users. And we played around with a lot of different ways to, to address it. But at the end of the day, our goal was always to aggressively spend up to that LTV amount, right? Mm. So to really think about focusing on growth and, you know, obviously there are different ways to think about that because you want to make sure that you're not, you know, in a negative position where you're then forced to go out and, you know, get venture capital to achieve that growth. And there are different thoughts on that. You know, in some instances, it may make sense. In other instances, that, that strategy might not make sense. It kind of really, it depends as, it, as in everything in life. Mm-hmm. But our model at Zynga was to aggressively spend up to the LTV. And I guess, I mean, what was the LTV of a user? And, and what kind of methods were you putting in place to kind of make sure you were operating at the most optimal way? Yeah, I'll, I'll focus more on the latter because it almost, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to disclose anything even though we're already past those days, but nonetheless, sure. it almost kind of the actual don't really matter as much as sure. the method. Sure. The method that we used is, you know, we were hyper aggressive on understanding the economics of our business. And the thing I'll say about Zynga that was one of the most impressive was the ability, the analytics that were developed in-house that gave us the ability to have that insight. So Zynga was a model that was ownership of the P&L by game with the general manager. That was my role. So I owned the P&L. I had a team of, you know, at the end, probably slightly over 100 folks, and we were focused on managing the growth of the business through a team that consisted of engineers, uh, CTO, product managers, um, project managers, design, um, you know, trust and safety folks. So we had a, you know, like a, it was like a little company. Um, but then we also leveraged central resources as well. So there, even though we had someone assigned to us to help us with our marketing objectives, marketing spend, there was also a centralized team that was pouring through the data on an aggregate basis, kind of getting some leverage, and then also breaking it down, in our case, for poker and for casino. So the way that we were able to to manage was both by really understanding the characteristics, the efficiencies of the channel, you know, where were our users coming from, and then getting granular to understand, okay, you know, what's the what's the reach look like in a particular channel, like a Facebook ad or a general ad. Um, you know, we advertise through other games, and we would also look at our marketing cost and LTV versus the overall average of Zynga, and then try to understand if there was any breakthrough from another group that was able to identify a new way of doing customer acquisition that was more efficient. You know, could we take any of those insights and apply them to to our particular game? But at the end of the day, everything came back to the amount of data that was processed and analyzed by the tools that the team uh, centrally created internally. And, you know, I used to always think, man, you know, um, the tools were so good that, you know, I, there, was, there was a standalone company just on the analytics side. Wow. wow. That's, <laughs> that's serious. I mean, that's incredible. And, I mean, did any of these guys or did Zynga ever, like, release that software or is that still an in-house proprietary piece of software? No, it's, it's still in-house. You know, a lot of folks have gone on to be able to leverage the analytic things that they learned at eBay, uh, excuse me, at Zynga, whether that be to, you know, apply them to a, another company that's focused on using the data to increase the, the performance or better manage the operations. Or, you know, some people have gone on to companies that do work on the analytics or the cloud side. Um, but yeah, no one... Uh, to my knowledge, kind of took that information 
her expertise out to commercialize it. Wow. And of course, I mean, we make it sound like it was a, I mean, we all know this, the success of Zynga, but I'm sure there were a few bumps in the road. Like, what were some of the things that you, you found challenging? Um, with the yeah, time probably, there? you know, managing when I joined and, and took over, um, probably right before poker, actually. You know, the biggest challenge was the ability to manage that Facebook relationship, right? You know, so Zynga, I joined before the economics changed in the relationship between Facebook and Zynga. And the biggest challenge was, you know, trying to manage that relationship. Here you had Zynga kind of, you know, crashing this gated community and throwing up a house where they were all of a sudden, you know, charging people to come into this party inside of this gated community. Yeah. And the homeowners association was like, wait a minute, what the heck? Who are these people? How are they going to come into our development where our homeowners association dues are supporting everything and now they're making money and we're not getting a piece of that? That doesn't make any sense. So I think that was probably the biggest, the biggest challenge. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I want to switch gears a bit now. And, and No, no, I don't. So what would you say are some of the key ingredients that you need to build a successful brand? Um, because you've, seen to, you've done great consumer brands, um, and consumer brands seem to be struggling at the moment. But you know, what do you think are some of the key ingredients, other than you know, understanding your cap to LTV ratio, what actually goes into creating a, a really strong consumer brand? Yeah, I think... So there, if we were to proverbially unpack your question there's actually a number of questions inside and i think instead of just trying to reframe it into a series of questions i'm just going to make a couple of observations one observation is that and i've spoken to a few people that handle recruiting for large venture funds about this we have developed a whole generation and kind of going back to our earlier conversation about customer acquisition back at eBay, where there was this transition from marketing being a safe haven for those afraid of math, for marketing being a place where it focused on people that know math. And what ended up happening is we created this generation of technology executives at the, at the junior ranks that don't really have a good understanding of how to create a brand, mm. right? So we've gone from, um, you know, trying to find that diamond in the rough, the Jeffrey Hausenbold, who could actually come and lead a customer acquisition team, to now we've created a whole generation of people where that's all they know how to do. Mm. And we've kind of lost the ability to have people on the marketing teams that understand the importance of telling a story or really having an emotional connection with the user. And it's, it's, I think it's led to, you know, a situation where, you know, we, we, it's tougher these days to be able to create a brand in that sense. Now, at the same time, I would, I would even say that in, in many instances, brands, are popping up to be able to serve finer slices of the population, finer meaning more granular or smaller slices of the population with experiences that they formerly were not able to to have and or, or products, experiences, products, services that they formerly were not able to, to have or find because the inefficiency of trying to create an economically viable um, company around a brand catering to that small of an audience. But now we see it happening all the time. And so maybe another way to think about it is the fact that from the proliferation of these long tail opportunities for direct-to-consumer companies, um, it's having an impact on the larger, more widely familiar brands. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so I think, 
you know, it's it's the, the biggest challenge that I often see in direct to consumer or creating a brand is if and we're on a, a technology startup podcast, so I'm gonna use that as the content. Yes. When an entrepreneur is building a brand for direct to consumer, I believe that it's important to really think about the amount of capital that's necessary to achieve both profitability and scale, and to make sure that we don't overcapitalize those companies. From the venture capital world and perspective, there actually are only a small number of people that have proven experience over a decade or more of investing successfully in the consumer companies in the D2C consumer companies. And so I think often what ends up happening is, you know, the venture capital mindset is really built more on an increasing return software model. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, the historical model. And, you know, in, in some sense, trying to take that same model and the economics and the capital required and the holding period doesn't necessarily translate one-to-one from software to consumer. And so the thing that concerns me often is consumer companies or entrepreneurs taking too much capital and then being in a position where the outcome has to be so large that it's difficult to make the, the return for the venture investor. That's so interesting. And I'm seeing that happen a lot, especially in like media. I mean, a lot of media companies have been folding or selling for less than they, they raised. And consumer companies are just, you know, either raising too much. But what I have found, though, is that for consumer companies, it's quite expensive to acquire users now. So do you think yes. companies are raising more money so they can fund and figure out their, their CAC to LTV ratio, their buying time? Or is it the fact that it's just a different time now and, and consumers and consumer companies just need to have more money in order to acquire users? Okay, so I think once product market fit is identified, the persona of the correct customer is identified and there's a deep understanding of how that person acquires their information and how that person makes their purchasing decisions and and what channels they use and the best way to approach them. You know, I think there's a period before that where I'm more concerned, which is raising too much money before the product market fit has been identified. Mm. Because I, I think your observation is 100% correct. Costs have gone up across the board. But at least once product market fit has been identified, the, the math to be able to understand how to achieve a certain level of revenue, and then if you know the LTV and then you know the customer acquisition cost, you can use math to be able to gauge, okay, well, how much do we need to raise in order to achieve this level of revenues? And if we know our economics, then we understand you know, what that path of profitability looks like. I think I'm a little more focused on the amount of money being raised to even get to that point. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so I want to I want to switch gears a bit now and talk about your your experience um, in venture capital um, and transitioning to venture capital. So why did you decide to transition out of I guess more of an operational role into venture capital? For me, it was all about a long term goal to get into venture capital. Once I got to grad school, my eyes were open to venture capital mm. and the the attractiveness to me at least of being in that profession. So it was more of being able to get to being a a VC. Um, And the reality and what I always tell people is personally, I wish that I had gotten here faster and I encourage people to, to become a VC as as quickly as, as is possible, right? I know that Interesting. it's a privileged position. There are not a lot of seats at the table. But if it is the case that someone knows that they want to be a VC, then at least try to get in as quickly as possible. Because in a normal financially focused venture fund that raises capital, I mean, it used to be every three to four years now, 
every one to two years. But the ability to be able to get into a firm, improve oneself as quickly as possible to get better economics and the next fund and the next fund, that takes time. And if you look at the holding periods, especially if you decide that you want to do early stage venture, um, the holding periods we know are long. Look at the companies that we have going public this year and how long they've been around. Probably the quickest one has been Zoom, but look at you know a company like Uber yeah. or Lyft or Pinterest. Yeah. Yeah. Those companies have been around for a little while. And if you were an investor early, um, you know, it's going to take five, six, seven, eight years to be able to see how those are starting to play out. And so then, uh, and if you look at the timeline to raise a fund, and if you want to be in this business for 20 years, I mean, you can just do the math and see, okay, kind of the, the optimal time to get in is early 30s when you've got enough experience under your belt, probably built a pretty good network, probably have, you know, a certain level of success to be able to break through the noise to actually get into one of these funds. And then you need to start thinking about kind of proving yourself over this long timeline and then being involved in multiple funds. So my advice is, you know, if possible, get in as early as possible, hopefully your your early 30s, where then you can start to prove that you deserve to be in this business where the results really aren't clear for probably about 10 years. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's spot on advice. Um, and so, what's your in once you got into venture capital? I mean, your first firm was Comcast, if I'm correct. Correct, Comcast Ventures. Comcast yeah. Ventures. You know, Kai Bond, uh, Francis, and I know those guys over there. Um, what What are some of the? I mean, how do you go about proving yourself in that space? Because it's not like Zynga, where it's like, oh, I'm going to move revenue from 150 million to core of a billion dollars, right? It's like, I'm not going to add more users, for example. How do you prove yourself in venture capital? Yeah, the first thing is to show that value can be added to the partnership. And it can be as simple as helping partners evaluate deals or source deals to begin with, to even evaluate help some of the existing portfolio companies, you know, all of those things are, are super helpful. If you go into a firm where they have an existing portfolio, um, that's one of the easiest things to do is to be able to, you know, it's a firm where there's been some past investors that are no longer there. They might have some companies that could use someone to come in and give a fresh perspective and to be able to be helpful, open up their network. I mean, that's one thing that will immediately allow an individual to add value. Another thing is the ability to go out and start just evangelizing to one's network. Hey, I'm now at this new firm. Here's the type of deals that are a good fit for us. And to begin sourcing some opportunities. You know, the best way to really understand this business and to get good at it is to go through as many deals as possible um, you know, it's, it's a funny saying is if you see, you know, 10 deals, one of those deals is going to look good. If you see 100 deals, one of those deals is going to look good. If you see 1,000 deals, maybe only one of those deals is going to look good. So start to look at as many deals as possible and then, you know, bring some of those in after an initial screen to the partnership to show that one has a network that can be valuable and additive to the sourcing process. Uh, and then, you know, there are little things as well. Like if you notice at a partner meeting that one of the partners comes back and reports that for a portfolio company, they're looking for a VP of engineering, go into your network and see if there are candidates that can be identified in your network and you know, pitch those candidates on um, at least taking a phone call with the entrepreneur um, to join. And then as uh, depending on the level that one comes in, uh, once more responsibility is given, you know, you might be asked to, to help work on, to work with another partner on evaluating deals. So going deep on the research for an industry or going as an observer to some board meetings or, you know, maybe it's the case that you jump right in and you're expected to actually go and, and identify deals, evaluate them and potentially make investments and, and go in and you know, I think the, the best advice that I ever got was, you know, um, I sat next to Mike Moritz 
of Sequoia at a at a con, uh, dinner, and I asked him. I said, "Hey, Mike, I just became a VC. You know, what's the best advice that you could give me?" And his his first question was, "Well, what's your background?" And I said, "Hey, I'm I'm an ex operator," and he. He, he rolled his eyes and kind of moaned a little bit. <laughs> he said, the challenge with you operators is you always want to come in and just make, you want to take action. You always, you're motivated by taking action, mm. and, which is true. And he said, the thing that you should do is not do an investment for a year. As hard as that might feel, don't do an investment for a year. Just look at as many deals as you can and just really start to understand what makes a good deal from a bad deal. And I think that that's true. And that's probably some of the best advice. You know, again, it goes back to something that I said earlier, which is just look at as many deals as possible. That's the only way yeah. to really start to really you know, understand this business. Um, yeah. If you don't do any deals, though, I mean, that would make me anxious. I mean, you know... Especially when you come from an operational background, it's like you're used to going in and doing things and you've got KPIs and you need to execute and you have to do this. And then you're telling True. me to like not do anything for a year at the one at the place where I'm supposed to do just that. I mean, that would, I, I don't know how I, I could deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> Were you fortunate enough to do a deal within your first year or did you take that advice um, and kind of just observe? I did a couple of smaller deals. I did some YC deals my first year but not a big deal right now i think i actually think that's that sage advice you know you have to right size that advice for your particular situation mm. but, but the, the bigger takeaway right as opposed to just kind of what was actually said the bigger takeaway is just be patient yeah it's, it's don't jump at the first deal that you see that looks good I mean, that's, that's the bigger takeaway. Yeah. And, you know, most venture capitalists that we've had on the show, everybody has a, a thesis. And I guess in the industry, everyone has a thesis. Like, we invest in this, we invest in that. What's your philosophy when it comes to investing? So I, I'd rather first describe Plexo Capital just to give some context. Yeah. After I left Comcast Ventures, I went to, I went to Google Ventures, yeah. GP. Uh, and the, the former head of GB recruited me over from Comcast Ventures. And as most folks know, Google Ventures has now been rebranded as GB after the alphabet structuring. And GB is the early stage venture capital unit for alphabet. So GB invests typically between $5 million and $30 million into companies. So at that check size, that means leading Series A's, leading Series B's and C's, or participating as part of a syndicate or co-leading, mainly at the B and later stages. Um, most of the investments are in uh, life sciences, uh, enterprise software and services infrastructure consumer, and frontier tech. So think um, ag, uh, robotics, mm, AI, things of that nature. So at, at GV, I was brought in, I was doing consumer things. And one of the things that was occurring while I was there was a desire by the founders, Larry and Sergey, the founders of Google, yeah. Or they really, Larry and Sergey really liked the GV model and wanted GV to deploy more capital. And as a result, we looked for different ways to be able to do that. And I mean, obviously, in a generic sense, you can write larger checks. We weren't going to do that because that's the domain of, of capital G, formerly Google Capital. You could go and invest into other sectors, um, but as, as you, you're aware, Users, your listeners are aware. I mean, that's often where you get into trouble is mm. when you try and go and do things that you're not familiar with. Mm. And so, where we landed was how do we get more deals in the areas um, that we operate in? You know, similar check size, five to thirty, as well as areas where we have expertise and have had proven success in investing. How do we fill 
the top of funnel for sourcing opportunities. And one of the things that we looked at was the ability to be able to work with seed stake venture funds that were led by a woman or a person of color. Oh. How did we land on that? Well, we had a thesis that women and people of color have a in you know a non-traditional path to venture capital and end up with a couple of things. Number one, they end up with really interesting networks that yeah. kind of you know have a a wider net than your typical kind of very insulated um, venture capital networks of Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. Oh. Number two, women and people of color, and this doesn't apply to every company, but women and people of color have a different lens to be able to often identify opportunities that others might miss, especially at the early stage, before there's an abundance of data to prove or show that something's working. Oh. And so we made five investments at Google Ventures or GB into seed stage funds led by a woman or a person of color. It worked for us in deal sourcing. We had new deals that we were able to see earlier and made investments into some of those companies. I looked at that opportunity and said, I think that there is a model to actually have a venture fund that is a hybrid of sorts doing the same strategy on the LP investing side and then solely sourcing direct investing opportunities from those portfolios of the, the VCs where there's a there's an LP stake. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, proposed that to to the, the powers that be, my former manager and, and at the alphabet level and they were very supportive and I incubated Plexo Capital inside of, of GB as a result. So going back to your, your question, um, so we focus in on a network of VCs or GPs, general partners, GP and VC are, are interchangeable. And we have GPs that we have invested into at Plexo Capital that are seeing tens of thousands of companies and then narrowing that down to those that they invest into. Those deals end up in their portfolio. That portfolio, in essence, is a curation of what they've seen in the industry. And then at Plexo Capital, we use that as an opportunity to identify interesting companies for us to invest into directly. So again, so we invest both as a, a limited partner or an investor into venture capital funds and directly into companies that we source from our VC funds we've invested into. Right. And so, you know, in a sense, the since the since the VCs are a woman or a person of color, something interesting happens. I mean, as you can surmise, the portfolios are more diverse than your typical portfolio of a VC. And something that often gets um, missed or lost in translation about Plexo Capital oh. is that we only invest in companies on the tech side that are led by a woman or a person of color, which, which actually is not true. We'll invest in any company, just like we want our VCs to invest into the best companies, independent of who leads them. But since it's the case that, you know, we talked about this, this network opportunity for women and people of color, um, their portfolios end up being more diverse and therefore the sourcing opportunities for Plexo Capital end up being more diverse. So, as a result, our portfolio is is more diverse. Um, so you know, it's it's an interesting way to be able to have a business model that made sense to be able to lead to outsized returns, but also have this indirect effect, albeit at a small scale. We hope that we grow it to be able to help address some of the issues on the funding side within Silicon Valley that leads to more diverse representation in the ecosystem, both at the leadership level, the founders and leaders of companies, as well as 
the rank and file employees within those companies. Yeah, I mean that's so fascinating, and it, and I think you know the work that you're doing at Plexo is is incredible, um, and I think you know there's so many things that you've said here that we can unpack and, and and dive into. But I think you're absolutely right in the sense that when people seem to hear the word diversity, they automatically think, oh, you only invest in black people, or you only invest in women, and that's that's actually not the case. Diversity means you know, it's in the name, diverse portfolio. It means we're going to look at everything. Um, and I think a lot of people team, seem to be afraid of diversity or they don't want to invest in diverse funds or diverse founders because um, they think it just means one thing. Um, so I think that's that's a really important part to, to point to make here. Um, and this is, again, why it's so important to have, I guess, people like yourself at the, around the table to have these discussions and to point these things out and... Um, I think over time we need to see more people coming into venture capital, um, you know, having these insights and then, you know, championing, you know, spinning off funds or wherever it may be, investing in diverse um, groups. Um, but I think it's a, I think it's incredible um, what Plexo stands for and, and the mission that you guys are doing. And how, how did you come up with the with the name? Um, so Plexo, I found means is Portuguese for intricate network. Yeah. So as you know, we talked a little bit about building brands and consumer earlier. So the name, the name game is very, very challenging. Yeah. <laughs> and talking with a lot of people and describing Plexo Capital, or, you know, at the time I didn't have a name, but in describing the concept and the strategy that we were taking from what worked at Google Ventures, um, the commonality was there's this amazing network and the ability to be able to leverage that network to cast a wider net to get to some of these opportunities. So I started to look for anything that was close to to network and most of the names, as you can imagine, were taken or squatted on. Yeah. And so then we started looking at other languages. I've always been intrigued by Brazilian culture, and so I started looking for names in Portuguese and came up with Plexo, and it, it hits so many different elements of branding. You know, mm. it's, it's only, you know, it's five letters, it's got the X, it ends with an O. Um, there's, there were just so many things that were in there that made it the, the perfect name, and then when it was available, I was like, I'm done. This is, uh, this is the name we're going to go with. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great name. Um, I wanted to ask, why do you think it's taken so long for diverse groups to get involved in this conversation, especially at the funding level? And at the funding level, we mean, do we mean the, the VCs or the entrepreneurs? The VCs. So setting up VCs. the funds, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's not dissimilar to any other industry where there's not great representation. You know, I think there have been strides made in other industries that kind of take them a little bit further, but it's still early innings for a lot of these areas in, in finance and in technology. I mean, obviously, you've seen more progress, uh, or maybe it's not obvious, but um, when you look at the data, more progress has been made in areas like, you know, Wall Street. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, the numbers aren't fantastic. No. <laughs> the, the, I think when one starts to think about the path of most venture capitalists, um, you know, and I'm one that I really like if you're an early stage VC, I think, you know, product management is one of the best ways to get there because the playbook for product management is very similar to the playbook for early stage VC. Mm. You got to understand a market opportunity or a problem. Who are the people that have that problem? How many of them have that problem? What are the existing solutions? How can you get to or acquire those users? What is the economic model? How do you make money? How much money is there to be made? You know, who are the existing competitors? All of those, those questions that a product manager has to think about are pretty much the same questions that an early stage VC has to think about. So if you, where do you become a, you know, a product manager that understands technology? Well, you can go to a big company like, and you know, in my case, eBay, Zynga. Um, today, you know, I would put, you know, 
Facebook, Google, some of the pre-IPO companies like Airbnb, Uber, Slack. And then if you start to look at, well, what does the representation look like? What are the diversity numbers at those companies? I mean, they're not good, as we know. So, if, you know, if that's kind of the, the pool. I guess the other pool that's obvious would be the entrepreneurs, right? The people that are founding successful companies, right? Those are kind of the, the paths that you've got. You know, you're either coming out of a, of a Google, you're coming out of or Facebook, you're coming out of, a, you know, a Stripe, Slack, Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, Lyft's public now, um, or you you founded your own company that had some type of, of successful outcome, right? In all those instances, you're probably in the mix of getting to know and establish relationships with people in the venture capital world. And as the saying goes, at a venture fund, oh, we're, we're, we're never hiring, but at the same time, we're always hiring. And so if, if one doesn't have the, you know, the network or the tentacles into those types of folks, then it's difficult to get hired at the senior level, uh, you know, partner level, general partner level. And so, you know, that's the challenge that we face is that, you know, we, we need the, the numbers um, to improve. Now, the, the good news is when you look at the funds that we focus on at Plexo Capital, and we focus on seed stage. So what does that mean? So a seed stage fund typically is a, a sub $100 million fund, although even that's starting to change, where the checks written are to lead rounds of, you know, one to five million. And, or if it's a pre-seed, you know, they're leading rounds maybe up to you know, one or two million. And the if you look at the the demographics of the, the partners leading those seed stage funds, especially fund number one or fund number two, uh, emerging managers is what we call them in my industry. Oh. Uh, the demographics actually, they don't look great, but they look a lot better for people leading seed stage funds than the demographics for the big established funds like, you know, the, the you know, Sequoias, Benchmarks, Greylocks uh, of the world. Um, why is that? Well, there's probably a number of reasons why they're better. I think one reason is because a lot of the people that are leading emerging funds, you know, people of color and women, um, they might have been folks that kind of hit the proverbial glass ceiling at some of the larger funds, decided to spin out, hang their own shingle. And, you know, where maybe they were leaving a billion dollar fund, now they're raising a $30 million fund, right? So they're immediately in this category of emerging manager at the seed stage fund So... You know, I think there, there's good news, there's bad news. I think overall, I feel like we're moving in a positive direction, but we're, we're doing it so slowly. Um, I think, you know, it's created a level of frustration um, among many different um, constituencies, myself included. You know, absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, things are, they're not moving fast enough. Um, is there anything that, you would urge people in the right in certain positions to start doing now, um, you know, whether it be senior people, senior people of color, or senior people or senior women. Like, what could they start to do now to kind of like help push this agenda forward a lot faster? Yeah, that is a question that is the right question to ask. One thing that I think is really interesting is. I always encourage people, whether they are thinking about venture capital or not, we already talked, we kicked the podcast off with, you know, get into venture capital as quickly as possible if you want to be a VC. You know, well, I guess a a natural follow-up would be, well, how do I do that? How do I build a track record? Well, one way to build a track record is to start investing in companies as early as possible. One of the things that's not well known is that 
an individual can invest um, out of their own 401k, at least in the United States. I know that your audience is global. Yeah. In the United States, um, one has the ability to be able to invest out of their, their 401k, which is the you know, individual retirement program in the United States. And you can invest into a private company. You have to get a special type of 401k, but there's not that many hurdles. It's not that hard to do. There's a lot of firms that will do it. All you have to do is a Google search. That's one way. And, it, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot of money, right? But if there's an ability to be able to start creating a network to see these deals, and then, and it's not that hard, you know, go to... You know, if you're if you're at one of these companies as a tech company, you know, to start to to network with other people, see if there are folks that you can identify that are doing angel investing. You know, if possible, try to invest alongside a, um, you know, maybe one of the institutional pre-seed or seed managers, so that that way one can start to develop their own their own track record. You know, and it could be you know just. A few checks of five thousand here, ten thousand there, or you know whatever, whatever makes sense. Um, if there's an ability to be able to provide some type of value to the entrepreneur, and a relationship can be developed, um, you'd be surprised at how many entrepreneurs would be open to it because you know it's not asking for a lot, and as long as it doesn't require a change to the docs, no one's going to change their docs for a five million dollar check. <laughs> it's not that hard to do. So in that sense, one could start to create a track record if there's an interest in down the road going into venture capital, or if a person said, "Hey, you know what? I don't necessarily want to be a C, but." You know, maybe I'm going to pull together, you know, five other women or five other people of my ethnicity, and we're going to go look for opportunities within our network to be able to collectively support people um, and help them get funded, especially, you know, for those folks that have a, a longer road to, to getting their goals met, right? Like, you know, if you're an entrepreneur of color, female entrepreneur, we, we, the data tells us it's tougher to raise. So, you know, you yeah. get an affinity group together and then go out and say, hey, you know what, we're going to, and there are already groups that do this, right? This is not a new idea, yeah. but it's something that I think often people don't know when they hear, oh, angel investor, they must be investing a million dollars. Well, no. Maybe they're only investing $5,000. Yep. So this is less about me trying to explain something that doesn't currently exist. It's more of trying to open the eyes of individuals that may nothing know it's something that they know exists, but that they can participate in as well. Mm. I think that's one of the biggest uh, misconceptions, especially within, I guess, the black community more specifically. Is like They think the barrier to entry is a lot higher than it actually is. That's right. That's right. And I mean, we could do a whole podcast on why that is. You know, I think I look at my own career, having gone to Hampton University for undergrad, historically black college, you know, most of my classmates, especially, you know, I'm, I'm not a spring chicken. So most of my class, you know, they went to, you know, careers in investment banking, management consulting, you know, so... Mm. Or if you went to a product company, you went to Procter & Gamble, right? And so I can remember vividly when I was telling some of my fraternity brothers that I was going to go work for eBay. Now, mind you, this is 2002. eBay is already a publicly traded company. But nonetheless, I can remember people reaching out to me and saying, ooh, we're worried. Isn't that a startup? Isn't that? <laughs> wow. And I'm like, eBay? I'm like, this is like going to IBM, right? Like, you know, it, it had gotten beyond the point of being risky. And so fortunately, some of that mindset has changed. So now at least people understand, you know, and I'm specifically talking about the, the African-American community, that you can have a career in technology. And I think now people are even warming up to the idea of being a technology entrepreneur. Ironically, when you look at, you know, 
historically the way that a lot of African Americans have amassed wealth, it actually has been entrepreneurial. Yeah. It's just that this, you know, doing it down the technology path, that's what's new. Mm-hmm. And so I think the good news is people are becoming more accepting. Number one, first thing that had to happen was getting comfortable with people going to work for, you know, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, people that have that. Now people are comfortable with you know, Uber, Stripe, Airbnb. And now people are comfortable with, oh, wow, I guess we can actually go do that as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I just want to give another massive shout out to Lo for coming on the show and another huge congratulations on closing the first fund. Hopefully this is the first of many. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a review on the Apple Podcasting app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.